What is up, everyone? Ryan Ray inside the war room. Today's guest is tennis coaching legend Rick Macy. You say, I don't know that name. Venus and Serena Williams. He is one of the key components to all of their success. It was great to speak to him. Warroommedia.com. That's where you get all of the podcast at. Uh, and as I mentioned, some of these will be going on YouTube as we go along. Um, so we record about a month or so in advance, two to three weeks, depending on what's going on. So some of these are a little bit older. They won't have YouTube, but we will be slowly integrating YouTube on some of the newer ones. So be sure to be on the lookout for that. Without further ado, let's talk to the legend, Rick Macy. And one other thing, we had some audio uh, internet problems. So there were some drop-offs. I've tried to edit this back together, but it might sound a little... Uh, patched up at times, and that's why. Just FYI. Okay, now let's talk to Rick. Rick, it is lovely to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Okay, so you are, um, I've seen you in other interviews, talking to you before. You're just an excited person. Like, where does that come from? Um, me and my daughter were just talking about that. You know, I, I've always been wired like that ever since I was a kid. Had a lot of energy, you know, self-motivated. Uh, taught myself how to play tennis. At the end of the day, I just always had a lot of passion and a positive person and uh, still going strong today. So I'm, I'm feeling good. Awesome. And what got you into tennis? Because that maybe just help you understand where I'm from. Tennis um, in Northeast Louisiana, where I, I'm in Texas now, but then wasn't really a big sport. I think our high school might have had a small team, um, went to a pretty big high school, but it wasn't really something that people pursued. Uh, was it something that you're in your family, something that your friends did? How did you get into tennis? Well, first off, great question. And I've been asked that a lot, you know, and this story's unreal. There's actually a documentary they're going to do about my life. And, you know, I, I used to play golf when I was little and my parents were county champions at the country club. Uh, my dad passed away when I was 10 years old. I picked up a tennis racket when I was 12 and we lived a half mile from a park and they had six tennis courts. And I went down there one day and just started hitting the ball against the wall and loved the sound of the ball hitting against that wall. And uh, fast forward six years later, I was the number one player in the Ohio Valley. I never had a lesson. And here I am at age 67. I probably teach more lessons than anybody in the United States. So it's an incredible story, uh, self-taught, self-driven. And sometimes when it's not given to you, you work a little harder. So uh, no, it wasn't in the family. And it's interesting that you just ask about that because uh, I just found out two days ago that they're going to name the tennis courts where I grew up. Uh, people have known I, as a small town, just like you're from 10,000 people and not a lot of people play tennis. And, you know, I was just out there nine hours a day and, you know, found my niche. And, you know, so to have everything come full circle and be honored like that is because I'm, I'm still have those Midwest, Midwest values and, uh, you know, single mom and we didn't have a lot. And so at the end of the day, it's, uh, uh, it's a great honor, but no tennis wasn't in the family, but, uh, my mom and dad were, were athletic. So you, you mentioned your dad passed though at a young age. And so yeah, 10 that? years old. So I, I really didn't have a father, you know, my mom, you know, um, really raised me and my sister. She's two years older than me. And, uh, you know, but I, you, you just, it is what it is, you know, and, uh, you know, I think the qualities I picked up just from my mom doing things on my own and, you know, treating others like you would like to be treated and 
helping others more than you help yourself and you know being genuine a lot of those inner qualities come across in my teaching besides the knowledge and everything else I bring to the table so uh, I'm wired a little different but uh, like you said earlier the energy and passion uh, who's ever on the other side of that net that hour that minute that second that's my favorite student of all time it's not Venus Serena or Capriati or Roddy it's if I was teaching you, Ryan, you'd be my favorite student that hour. Well, if you saw me serve a few, you might change your, you might change your. Mind. No, listen, I like challenges. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's someone on the pro tour or a little kid or a 75 year old guy, I just like helping people. And, you know, I don't change strokes. I change lives. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. What, what is it about um, single sport athletes that separates them from team sport athletes? Well, the biggest thing, you know, it's all on yourself. You know, there's no one to motivate you. You got to figure it out on your own. Uh, in, in tennis, even in doubles, you kind of have a therapist on the court with you. You have a partner. But no, it's, it's, it's all on your own. And you got to be mentally so much stronger. In my opinion, uh, it's just like boxing or any individual sport. You got to be mentally so much stronger, especially in tennis, because you got 20 seconds to act like it happened 20 years ago before you play that next point. And if you don't, Ryan, have the ability to forget, you'll never reach your ability. You got to have the shortest memory, especially in single sports like tennis. What, what do you tell yourself? You say forget. And, and so you think about life, whether it's tennis, um, you have a bad business meeting um, or just a bad moment in the day. You, you 20 seconds course to serve, you know, it's coming at you a hundred miles an hour, whatever it is, it's at the elite level. But how do you stop, put that aside, forget, but also improve? Yeah, well, that's the wild card that separates great from good. You know, great is rare air. Everybody's good. We're all good. Greatness can flip it in her mind. You know, Sharapova had this ability, obviously the Williams sisters, you know, you got to be all about the competition you can't worry about the past. You got to look at it as a challenge. You know, people respond to adversity all kinds of ways. You know, some people need to take a deep breath and count to 100. You know, tennis, you don't have that much time. So, but this is a good lesson for anybody, how you handle problems. And, you know, I, I'm pretty much bulletproof. Nothing really bothers me, but if it does, you don't show it and it doesn't affect your nervous system. And you learn these skills over time. And I think that's one of my, best attributes is not only helping students biomechanically, but mentally, how to become stronger and how to handle things, because it does come down to a choice. And we all make choices, what we read, what we hear, who we're around. And, you know, this is a big, big thing, like you said, not just sports, but life in general. You got to look as a challenge. You got to know you're going to be challenged. I want you to be great when things are going bad. Anybody can be really good when things are good. And that's the key. You got to look at it totally backwards and you can figure this thing out. Mm. Yeah. And thinking about tennis players, again, watching documentaries, reading like a biography or whatnot. Um, a lot of the elite tennis athletes are starting at a, what, under 10, probably seven, eight, nine, somewhere in that range. Yeah, no, listen, I have people four five and six years old. No, this is about repetitions. Uh, I'm in a different situation because obviously everybody I've taught people become number one or one grand slam, you know, I get a lot of elite athletes or parents play NBA, NHL, you know, soccer. So I get 
very high level athletes besides this average players, but no, they start young because people think the sooner you start, okay, it's going to help. It could, but in my opinion, it's not junior final destination. It's junior development and it's mm -hmm. a long-term process and you need to make them the best athlete you can. So if there's any parents listening to this, that's the leader in the clubhouse, make them the best athlete you can expose them to many different sports. Eventually you're going to have to lock into one thing and get the repetitions, but whoever starts the earliest doesn't become the best. And what's living proof is the guy doing this podcast. I didn't have a lesson. I picked up a racket at 12 and at 18, I was number one in the Ohio Valley. I became a pretty decent player, but I knew early on, I wanted to get into teaching. And as they say, the rest is history. What's that moment like being number one um, and trying to decide how far you can press this or at what point you realize that I was number one, but I won't be able to stay at a high level. How do you make that shift? You mean in the pros? Yeah, you said at 18, you were, you were number one. And so oh, at, oh, at okay. some point, obviously, people pass you. When did you yeah. know and how did you work through that process of, okay, it's time to set the, the racket to play competitively aside and then teach? Well, first off, you know, I knew I wasn't ever uh, going to be like Borg, Connors, or McEnroe back in the day. You know, you need coaching. You know, I was self-taught. You know, I was a great athlete, mentally strong in the Hall of Fame for tennis and basketball. So I had a lot of inner qualities that were, in my opinion, world-class that I share with other people. But you, I needed more opportunity and financial help. So I knew early on I could be three, four, five hundred in the world. But if that's the case, you're not going to make a living. You know, all the money's at the top. And I knew early on, uh, but I still played. You know, uh, I spent a year in New Jersey. I was number one in the men's. I still played actively when I moved to Florida as one of the best players in Florida, but that's a far cry from winning the U S open or getting to the quarterfinals. That's different levels, you know? So I knew early on, uh, that I wanted to get into teaching. I had a gift to communicate and you know, had these other qualities and I love to figure things out. I just intrigued to figure things out and I don't stop until I figure it out, you know? And so at the end of the day, I was easy not to, uh, it was easy to let go of the playing because I was never at that level. You know what I mean? Where mm -hmm. I was on the tour, you know, I almost, I almost got there. I played a few pro tournaments. Uh, so it wasn't that hard at all for me because at the end of the day, no one got more out of their ability or worked harder as a kid than Rick Macy. But, but you do see Rick that um, some people, maybe not in tennis, I don't know enough about the, the under tournaments, but like basketball, they'll play college ball, but then they'll go play, uh, European ball, and they're not really making a living. I mean, they're making money, but they're not making you know NBA money. And so they, they do push it. So it does take a certain self-awareness to realize that that you you might have been the top dog for a while, but but the the, the top dogs are now passing you. And that's it's got to be uh, self-awareness sometimes is lacked in sports. Absolutely. First off, great question. You know, last time I checked, the world's a big place. <laughs> it's bigger than Greenville, Ohio, or Louisiana, <laughs> or or wherever. The world's a big place. You know, and so. Yeah, people need to take a deep breath. And But, you know, listen, you have those moments and you come close or you almost or you have a victory and that keeps you hanging on because you just never know. Uh, and I get that. You know, I get that. Um, and some people, like you mentioned, basketball, you know, they've done that their whole life and they can still make decent money going overseas. But somewhere along the line, OK, happens a little later on. You're going to have to go in the real world to deal with real people and real problems and figure things out. And when you can look at it like that, 
and prepare like that, you're going to be more prepared for the game of life. How do you have that conversation with someone you're training? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of kids, listen, a lot of kids already, when they're some of the best kids in the 12 and under, their parents are probably already booking tickets for Wimbledon. And we both know uh, you got, they might be, they might be watching it on television and mm -hmm. it's a far car. It's a far cry. And you go, your main goal is to get a college scholarship and to go free. Now, where you go division one, two or three, that depends on your grades and your ability, mm -hmm. but you know, pro tennis is it's, it's, it's tough. And people, they all need to know that, but listen, I want people to dream. You never know. I would never stop someone from dreaming. And the one good thing about myself, I have such a reference point in coaching that I can bring up Venus, Serena, Capriati, Roddick, Sharapova, Mesquina, Pierce, Spadia, Rude, Alami, okay, Kennan. You know, I can bring these people up and tell them of those experiences. And I can bring up people that have been number one mm -hmm. and they went sideways or they disappeared or they quit playing. And I educate the parents as much as I do the kids. So listen, work your butt off, try your best every day, have a great attitude. Let's see where you end up. That, that's, that's interesting because you, you referenced the, the eye test and the experience. Um, for me, growing up, I played football from you know, four or five all the way through high school, but I knew um, by early high school for sure that I couldn't play D division one football because I wasn't big enough. I wasn't fast because I was um, the ball boy for a local college football team. And so I would see these guys and I was like, I see me, <laughs> I see how much I'm benching and squatting and I see them. Like there's no, there's no, there is no help. And so I think it's hard maybe for people who aren't around top tier athletes to really understand the difference between a top tier athlete. So you are, I, I can see that being helpful. Like just the eye test go, Oh, wow. He hits the ball hard or he's moving laterally fast or, or, or whatever it might be. No, absolutely. You know, listen, you got to understand, especially in my situation, you know how many people have told me I have the next Venus and Serena. You could imagine that, that movie. Okay. And people don't understand, you know, I've had, you know, the quickest, fastest, some of the best players of all time at a young age. And I know how to put Humpty Dumpty together. So when you say your kid is fast, I'm not saying they're not fast, but I know what fast is or competitive is. It's a different level. You know, just like if somebody, a parent, won a gold medal, their reference point's different than someone who just played high school basketball. You know, it, ha it has to be a different, you know, or what is pressure if you won Wimbledon and you're serving for the match and you're serving for the match for your high school team? You know, there's, it, it's the same, but it's very, very different. And, you know, so, but I can articulate those experiences and educate the parents because, listen, when you can educate the parents, it's only going to help the kids. So if you think of basketball or football, um, walking on an NBA court or NFL field, you can see these guys are all 6'3", at the smallest, 6'6", six, 6'7", six, 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 So you know, unless you have these large genes in your family, you might can at an early age realize, okay, hey, listen, we're probably not going to be 6'7", so basketball is probably not going to be an option for us unless we're the outlier. What about physical composition for tennis? Is the average American – um, built to play professional tennis, assuming they had the talent and all the work ethic and all the other stuff? Yeah, well, another great question. First off, genetics play a big part in any sport. Listen, that, that's huge. And, and you know, if you can hit the ground running and you got speed, quickness, agility, 
you know, maybe some size. I mean, and then, but then judging that's all in the eye of the beholder. So the genetics have so much to do with this. And I tell everybody, you with Serena, uh, lucky she picked up a tennis racket, big, strong, fast, quick, agile, mobile, the greatest player to pick up a racket, maybe the greatest female athlete and she ended up playing tennis. This is what people got to understand. You got to have something in your pocket. If you're quick, sure, you can get quicker. But if you got something already in your pocket from mom and dad and Richard and Orsine hit the genetic jackpot with Venus and Serena, it's just got cultivated by Rick Macy, who took the financial risk and the coaching. And, you know, obviously we changed history. So, but you're right. You listen, if you're not really good in those areas, you better be biomechanically so sound technically. You know what I mean? Even your environment has a lot to do with this. That makes you how competitive you are, your brothers, your sisters, you know, and that's what I saw in Roddick. I mean, he was just like a mosquito. The guy wouldn't leave you alone. He was an amazing competitor as a little kid. So all I'm saying is all these factors go into it. And unfortunately, in today's world with social media, people entitled, a little spoiled, you know, you know, you're trying to pamper your kid. You got to be tough. You got to know when to hug them but you got to really know when to kick them in the butt. And that's the job of a parent. Oh, okay. So walk me through the Venus Serena high level career arc, because as a non tennis enthusiast, but watch, you know, occasionally I've got, a, I've got one of my best friends. He's a huge tennis guy, but um, so I'll, I will follow the headlines. I'll follow the stories, kind of the arcs, but am I correct that when Venus and Serena came on the scene, Venus was viewed as potentially the next best thing. And then Serena just kind of eventually just, Blue Pasture, or was Serena always? Am I, am I remember, is that correct? Am I remember that right? Or no, you're you're in the neighborhood. But let me ask you a question: Did you see the movie King Richard? No, I did not. You got to see it. I okay. mean, that's that tell, that says everything. It tells the whole story and how you know we teamed up and changed history. But at the end of the day, here's the way that all worked. Uh, when I went out to Compton in 1991, I got a call from Richard Williams. He invited me out there. Uh, Venus was undefeated in the ten and under whatever that means, you know, that doesn't mean a lot to me. And if I go see a player, they're either at a tournament or they come to the academy. Well, this guy calls me and he said, I want you to come and look at my daughters. And I never went to see someone. And he goes, we're from Compton, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't know anything about Compton other than riots and stuff like that. And he goes, Rick, 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 I promise you won't get shot. You know, he was the funniest guy ever. <laughs> and I said, I got to go. I got to go meet this guy. I'm just curious. I don't know why. I decided to do this. Okay, Capriotti, who I had for three years, she was already on the pro tour and top 10 in the world. I don't know why I decided to do it. I was just curious. And I booked a ticket. I went out to LA. I'm probably the only guy in the world that says their best vacation ever was Compton, California. I'm probably the only guy <laughs> in the world that's ever said that. You know, so I go out there just like yesterday. Listen to this. This is a crazy story. Just like yesterday, they come to the hotel, Venus on one leg, Serena on the other, hugging and kissing, just like you see in the movie, close-knit family. Richard pulls out a piece of paper. He starts grilling me like I'm in a deposition. I'm going, but I respected it because if he was going to let someone in their circle, he wants someone who's been there, done that, who's a role model, fig father mm -hmm. figure. So I kind of respected it. So the next day he said, we're picking you up uh, at seven o'clock and we're going to East Compton Hills Country Club. Listen to this. So he picks me up at seven o'clock in this Beetle bus that you see in the movie, exact same bus. I get in the passenger side. 
I get harpooned in the buttock by a spring. I look <laughs> in the back. There's Venus and Serena back there. McDonald's wrappers, dirty laundry, ball hoppers, tennis balls. As this was like an, as in a movie. And now I'm, I'm director of tennis at a five-star resort, Greenleaf. I'm like on the other side of the tracks now. And I'm going, what in God's name am I doing in Compton, California? <laughs> so now he goes, Rick, we're going to East Compton Hills Country Club. About 15 minutes into the ride, I'm looking around. I'm going, this is a strange place for a country club. Mm -hmm. We walk to a park. Listen to this. There's guys shooting baskets, smoking, drinking, people passed out in the grass. We get out. They go, hey, King. Hey, King Richard. And by the way, that's the name of the movie. They mm -hmm. go, hey, EW, Venus Williams. Hey, me, Serena Jamaica Williams. That's her middle name. We get out. They part on the basketball court like the Red Sea. These like little celebrities. They were nine and 10 years old because the New York Times did an article on Venus four months earlier. So they probably had some publicity. Oh. We go across the basketball court. We go onto the court. Me and you wouldn't even play on it. I had a box of Wilson balls. He goes, Rick, Rick, Rick we don't use new balls. We only use old balls. I want them digging. I want them scratching. I don't want them using new balls. I want them bending. I got it, but it was a little different. Now we go onto the court. There was a shopping cart on the net post with seven chains wrapped around it. He looks at me. He goes, Rick, I got to secure it. It won't be here in the morning. Okay. It's crazy. Uh. He puts the old balls in. Now listen to this. I start drilling Venus and Serena. And I'm going, what, what am I doing in Compton? Remember, I had Jennifer Capriotti. Best junior player of all time, poetry in motion. And I'm looking at these two little girls, hair, beads, flying off their head. Uh, it was a train wreck. Then we started playing competitive points and the whole landscape changed. Listen to this. They started popping the popcorn, extra butter. Their feet were going 100 <laughs> miles an hour. Their shoulders were turned right away, but there was a rage. There was a rage inside both these little girls to get to the ball to the point they almost fell down. I'm going like, this is crazy stuff. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be number one, but I'm thinking in my mind as a coach, six feet, 160, 5'10", 145. I'm projecting them as 17 years old. Right. right then and there, I go to Richard. Richard, come here. Let me tell you something. You got the next female Michael Jordan on your hands. And he puts his arm around me. This is in the movie. No, brother, man. I got the next two. That's oh, a true wow. story. So to wow. answer your question, Venus was almost 5'9". Serena was like a little prankster. But here's what I saw in Serena. She had all the time in the world, which was bizarre. No one understood what I meant by that one, like Tom Brady in the pocket. And she knew where you were going to hit it before you did, even though she was a little hamburger with extra cheese. She wasn't that good because she was like all over the place, but she had these intangibles. And they had that bulletproof rage, Compton street fight I saw inside. But Venus had these strides like an Olympic sprinter. So you're right. It was all about Venus. The movie's kind of about Venus, but from an athletic point of view, okay, Serena was something I never saw. And I'm on video in 1991, just what I told you, okay, um, where this would go. They'd both be number one. They'd share the same house, the same bed, okay? And uh, they're going to be both number one in the world. And this was when they were 10 and 11 years old. As a coach, what is that feeling like internally? <laughs> like, I've just got two Michael Jordans. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. Well, the difference is, the difference is, 
other people didn't see it. Because listen, I've had over 10,000 people look at that video when they're 10 years and 11. They go, my kids are better. They're looking at the outside. I'm looking under the hood and I see a Ferrari on steroids. I mean, this was crazy stuff. They, they didn't see what I saw. And not very many people are going to fund the project. You know, I bought a $92,000 motorhome. I had to pay Richard. I paid him a salary of like 54000 We had hitting partners, Taekwondo, boxing, ballet. Had to get him a house, a van to drive, Disney tickets, my time, four hours a day. This was a million-dollar project that I dove into because I knew not only could they be number one in the world, I thought they could transcend the sport. Because back in the early 90s, if you were big and strong, you weren't nimble. I thought they could transcend the sport. So to answer your question, 30 years later, how this come full circle in a movie, and you got to see King Richard, you'll get blown away. Um, we changed history. So yeah, and when I went out to the red carpet, to the after party, and met up with Venus and Serena, laughing, crying, telling jokes, going back down memory lane. Listen, uh, reunited with Richard. I went up to his house in West Palm Beach. Listen, uh, we were on a mission and uh, we changed history. And that's a, that's a powerful thing. But, the million, but in this case, um, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, the million dollar investment paid off. Absolutely. I, I could have been wrong. Listen, right. they could have been, I've been wrong before. That's why I'm right more than most people. Okay, because I've been wrong a lot. And listen, this could have got catastrophic injury. I could have been wrong. They could have quit playing tennis. Listen, two little African-American girls from Compton, California, that technically were a train wreck. And Rick Macy rolled the dice, okay? And at 14 years old, when Venus made her debut, okay, and beat 57 in the world and almost beat number one, nine months later, she gets a $12 million contract. You can't make this stuff up. And the little sister might be better. And she's <laughs> going down as the greatest tennis player ever to hold a racket with 23 Grand Slams, okay, seven Wimbledons, six U.S. Open, six Australian, four gold medals. She won 14 Grand Slam doubles with Venus, okay? She was number one in the world at age 35. I mean, you can't, you can't really make this stuff up. Her, her numbers are off the chart, but we'll never see anything like Serena again because it's the ultimate athlete that picked up a tennis racket and she got amazing coaching and inspiration at a young age because if I don't make that trip to California, me and you aren't talking right now. Mm. When you listen to elite athletes that sometimes talk about the journey, oftentimes you wonder if they enjoyed it, if they appreciated what was happening in the moment. Um, were you able to appreciate what was happening or were you concerned about the next match? No, I, I listen, they didn't play junior tournaments. That's another thing. How crazy is that? They didn't play any junior tournaments because Richard said, Rick, if I play junior tournaments, you're going to have to get me out of jail because I'm going to kill someone. I can't handle these parents. I'm telling you. And that's in the movie also. So my the bottom line is every day we just tried to get better. And I was on a mission. And I never talked to the girls when they were 10 and 11 like juniors. I said, Steffi Graf would get that. Navratilova would get that. Capriotti would have done this. Sella, I always talked that and like venus and serena said the ultimate compliment rick we were brainwashed to be number one they looked at themselves as athletes that were playing tennis 
and they were supposed to be number one. This is how the training went. So that environment of motivation, inspiration, dedication, education that I put together, okay, in that four-year period was amazing. I was on a mission and Richard said it best in a letter. You know, I treated his daughters like they were my own, you know, and we were family. Venus and Serena were my own daughters and Richard was my best friend. And so when you have that type of relationship, you can get people to, to move mountains. What is it like watching them play after you've coached them? Um, well, <laughs> for, for them or any of them, any of your yeah. students. Well, no, you know, I always look at it as a coach first. I, I don't really like get too high or low. I'm, I'm glad for them. I actually look at it and I love this question. I see the same mistakes at 22 or 28 or 32 that I saw at 12. That's, but the hole is shrunk. I see the same mistake. The hole might have got smaller, but it always comes out under pressure, whether it be Kennan, Sharapova, uh, Capriotti, Roddick, Venus. It, 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 that's why the cards you're dealt at a young age, this is important for any parent, especially in tennis, because it's so technical. Because if you had a million of anything, you're going to get better. That doesn't mean it's optimal. You know, shooting a basketball is a little different. Right? Football is a little different. You know, tennis is so technical, you know, with the mechanics. Because the speed of the game, like every sport, it changes as you get older. And if you got crazy grips and backswings, you get bit when you get older. So I see that I look at it first as a coach of what it could have should have. And that's why I'm big into biomechanics. My partner, Brian Gordon, who's cutting edge, PhD, and, you know, he has his thesis in this stuff. Um, the technical part to get the optimal strokes on the best possible athlete then it's up to you to have a great work ethic and want to knock someone out. So to answer your question, I always look at it first from that point of view, but whenever they have success, no one's more proud of them than Rick Macy. Is it recency bias or is this the golden age of tennis? Say that one more time. Is this recency biased or has these past 20 years been the golden age of tennis? For me and well, I, I, I think in women's tennis, uh, you're never going to see anything like the Williams sisters again. The story, how they inspired, you know, so many people, not just the African-American community. Uh, you can be an aggressive, emotional athlete, show your intensity on your sleeves. I think she's inspired her and Venus, so many different people. Um, but in men's tennis, it's dropped a little bit. We got a lot of good athletes. We don't get the elite athletes anymore. They go to other sports. So it really hasn't been the golden age. It's, it was back in the day when you had Agassi, Sampras, Courier, and people like that. That was kind of the golden age for the men. Because really? no one's won the U.S. Open or won a Grand Slam since I had Roddick. And that was over 20 years ago. So, But with the women, it's not quite as physical. So we're still going to always be in there. But we should be because the United States is the biggest country with the most resources. Uh, so in my opinion, we should be doing a lot better, but we got to get the premium athlete. If I'd have had LeBron James at 10 years old, it's not so much about me, no doubt about it. I could have got him number one in the world. LeBron James. That, that's no doubt about figure. it. He could move. No doubt that, about it. Really? He knew how to compete. He knows how to run. He knows how to jump. Okay. Get him a serve like Roddick, a forehand like better, a backhand like Djokovic. Are you kidding me? I mean, cover the court like Batman, Spider-Man, and Aquaman. I mean, give me a break. Those are the athletes 
That's the athlete you see in Federer and Djokovic. These guys are amazing athletes. We get very good athletes. And then the mental part, how you're brought up, that has a lot to do with this, the mm -hmm. hunger. And uh, a lot of times, I'm not stereotyping, but a lot of times, Eastern European, they're a little. Okay, yeah. So you, you mentioned the Eastern European thing. I was going to ask you about that because um, a sport that I follow quite often is uh, like fighting. And they always, in fighting, at least the cliche goes is, if you you want a fighter who come from a rough upbringing, right? Because they're going to be rough and tough and gritty and they're going to want it more. Tennis, from the outsider perspective, seems to be the antithesis of that, which is kind of the the high society. Of course, the, the Williams sisters, as you just pointed out, wouldn't be that. Is there any truth to that in the States on tennis? I mean, I know you talk about the Eastern European side, but can you be extremely wealthy and be a world-class athlete, not from a talent standpoint, but from a dedication drive standpoint? You can. You can. It's trickier. You look at uh, Jessica Pagula. You know, her dad owns the Buffalo Bills. She's top 10 in the world. So, you know, that, that kind of debunks that. You're always going to have these flyers. But in general, when you talk to the masses, you know, and you have your own car at 16 and education is more important or your parents have a lot of money, it's easier, I think, to know you have a backup plan. And the last time I looked, fear was the number one motivator in the history of the world. You know, when you're afraid, okay, you'd be amazed how you're more driven. So I think there is uh, a little bit of truth to that because you need to have money to play tennis. It's very expensive to travel and to take lessons, you know, especially someone like myself. So I, yes, I agree. And that goes back to what I said earlier. It's easier to go out your front door, dribble a basketball, start taking jump shots or go out and tackle your neighbor. You know what I mean? So football, it's easier. It's not, it's not expensive to go to other sports. That's why these athletes go there. But yes, no question about it. Um, you, you need money in tennis because it's so technical. And the hunger part might not be there quite as much if you know you have a backup plan because your parents are kind of well off. Yeah. Yeah. What is What do we do as a society? How do we think about that? Because part of what you're describing is um, you know, access to wealth, right? So when you have a lot of ways to make money, then the choices that you might choose are going to be a lot more varied. When you have a few ways to make a lot of money, then you're going to choose those paths um, to go there. So as a society, is it a bad thing that people are not choosing tennis per se now? Yeah, no question. And that's another reason why you want to be around a person who knows what's going on, been there, done that role model can explain, help the parents navigate through all this stuff because it's tricky, but it's hard because as a coach, you're going to be with them two, three, four hours, maybe, but they're with their parents and what happens behind closed doors. You know, that's the parents have to be as much sports psychologists as parents. You know, they, they want to help their kids, but you don't want to create this giant marshmallow either. You know what I mean? You want them hungry. But then again, you can't yell and scream at them and tell them they're lazy and then go to the mall and buy them a Gucci bag. You know, it doesn't work like that. You know, and that's that's the problem with a lot of, uh, you know, parents nowadays. They don't really understand the big picture because underneath the hood all these people you see on tv they're rough they're tough they're competitive they'd run over broken glass to get a ball you got to understand that's the wild card it's not just who looks the best it's who delivers the goods under pressure and 
Uh, that's why I try to educate the parents. And that's a big part of what, what I do. If yeah. they'll listen. Yeah. Maybe unpack that a little bit more, the competitive nature, because I always tell people, um, you know, go watch Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame induction uh, speech. And, you know, he's kind of trashing everyone. And he's in the Hall of Fame, considered the greatest player of all time, but he's so competitive that he can't let go what he thinks people have wronged him over the years. Normal humans aren't wired, it seems, for the same competitive nature as these premium athletes. Um, how far is that margin between this average person and you know, a Roddick or a Serena? I'm glad you said Roddick. It's huge. Got to be the first one to get a drink gotta be the it's like an obsession it's an obsession you know i mean maybe not with everybody but from what i've been around it's like that they just expect more from themselves even though they're pushed and they're motivated they they always expect more from themselves they, they gotta be first at everything everything's a competition and i create that environment to try to get the kids to think like that and i've changed personalities you know i've had lazy kids become the hardest workers and that's why the environment, especially with young kids, a coach is so impressible on a kid or a teacher in a classroom. You have no idea. And it can cut the other way. Some people might just want your business and be your friend, and they're not really helping you. But that doesn't mean you want to be so negative with someone. And that's the art of coaching. No one to push, hug, when to say it, how to say it, why to say it, when to say it. That's a whole art to this whole thing that, that I do. It's a medley or a smorgasbord of, of how to do this. But no, that's a that's a uh, a great question. And everybody needs to really understand that part of it. These people go to a different beat and maybe a little bit just like me as a coach. You know, I get up every day at three o'clock. I run a half mile. I open up the park at 530. I'm on the court at six. I've done that for 30 years. I still teach 50 hours a week. People say, why do you answer your phone? I said, because it rings. <laughs> or why do you pick up the garbage? I said, it never jumps back in the can by itself. So, you know, I'm a little different, okay, in that regard. But when you love it and you're that competitive, you're like that in everything. And that reminds me that you said that about Jordan. Larry Bird goes into the three-point, this is a great story. He goes into the three-point shooting contest in the locker room. Everybody's in there and he goes in there and he addresses everybody. He goes, which one of you guys is planning on coming in second? <laughs> that's Larry Bird, you know? Yeah. And that, that's, that's his, that's, and let's face it. He didn't jump the highest. Mm -mm. He won the quickest or fastest. Just a brutal, brutal, brutal competitor. And that made up for the deficiencies. And I think you see a lot of that in Tom Brady also. And I think if you go back and watch that uh, Larry Bird three-point competition, he actually left his sweats, his warmups on and beat them in his warmups. He didn't, he didn't take them off because he was just trying to, you know, be that much dominant. And he probably reminded them all that too, you know, like. <laughs> so I don't, I, I'm not sure if it's healthy for all societies to have the drive that maybe erotic does, but we definitely need more drive. So you said that you're getting up at 3 a.m. You're doing all this stuff. Walk me through the balance. Yeah, there's something to be said about loving what you're doing. But there's times where things are tough. You, you wake up at 3 a.m. and it's 20 degrees. <laughs> you know, it's better to stay in the bed. Um, how do you press through when you're like, I don't want to, but you do press through that separates you from uh, the other people in the world? Well, listen, it works for me. It's not one size fits all. You know, I, yeah, yeah. Okay. If it's not 20 degrees here, but at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, 
you know, I just, when I get up, I'm just ready to go. I expect it from myself. You got to play a game within a game within yourself. It comes down to what you expect of yourself. You got to get into a routine. You got to have structure. Don't get me wrong. You got to have balance. You need to have time to take a deep breath and pet your dog or cat or do whatever works for you. But this works for me, you know, and for other people, maybe I'm sure it doesn't. You know, I get up at that time because I, I want to. And, you know, just like what people eat or what people say, it just works for me. But you need you need balance at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, the main thing is if you're happy when it's all said and done, that's all that really matters. Mm. OK, leave us with some final words of wisdom for parents out there who are maybe you said you've had kids who have been lazy and you've been able to motivate them. Um, I have a boy and three girls, so you have to handle them a little bit differently. Of course, too. So maybe give us a, a tips for motivation for boys and tips for motivation for girls. Yeah, listen, it, you gotta, you know, when you're dealing with young kids, okay, you gotta kind of really educate them and show them other people and kind of the way they do it, the way greatness does it. And I think that's seeing is believing because kids like to look at things. And, you know, I have people watch other players play tennis and how they respond after they lose a point. And I try to tell them to imitate that. But I think the leader in the clubhouse, number one, if they can get their kids, never, ever, ever make excuses. If you could get that number one, because it's easy to blame everybody. That's all you see on television. That's all you see everywhere in the society, this crazy world now. Never make excuses, you know, and believe me. Both you and I could make a lot of excuses. I could make a lot. And Jet, I live by that. I just never make excuses. And it's easy to do and hard, hard to kind of stick by that. That would be number one. Treat other people the way that you would like to be treated, you know? And the greatest of all time, whether it be in any sport or any business, they're the most positive people that ever walked the face of the earth, okay? you got to understand you're going to have problems. You're going to have adversity. The world's not rainbow, lollipop, and sunshine. You're going to have problems every day. It's how you deal with failure that determines success. And don't look at it that you're failing. You're just got to look at it the way I look at it. I'm going to find another way to try to do it better. Because mm -hmm. if you beat yourself up mentally, you can go south in a hurry. And that would be my advice to any parent with any kids. Motivate your kids. Get your kids to believe. Uh, make sure they're active and doing physical fitness. They need to do more than just study because I think it's good for the brain. But at the end of the day, okay, having the best attitude and smiling, that's probably the best medicine I can give anybody. Well, I, I think you're spot on with the don't make excuses because there's a, so many times in life where we choose to not do the thing that we could have done. And then we make an excuse for why we didn't do it. So I didn't pick up the piece of trash because I had to get my cell phone. Well, those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. You could have picked up the trash and then got your cell phone or, you know, and so we will, we, we have a tendency to start making excuses for small stuff. And um, that, that can only compound over time if you're not careful. So I think that is extremely, extremely on point there. Okay, Rick, thank you for your time today. I know we've had a little bit technical, technical difficulty, so apologies about that. Where do you want us to send people to? Obviously, we're linked to the movie King Richard, but where else? Your website, social media? Uh, yeah, you go to people go to www.rickmacy.com. They go to my Instagram. I got uh, Rick Macy Tennis YouTube channel. I give free instruction 
I have some of the best videos of all time and it's all free there. They can go there. If anybody ever has a question, they can email me. I get back to everybody within 24 hours. People can't believe it. I'm very accessible. Guy. I can attest to that. No, at the, no, at the end of the day, I, I'm just one of the guys and uh, I've been fortunate. And like I said, what I try to do now is help anybody, anytime, any way that I can. Well, Rick, this has been truly a pleasure. Um, best of luck as you continue just to inspire us all with your, your charm and charisma and, and this and this way you attack the day. It's exciting. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, we'll, we'll talk again in the future. Okay, and apologies about the audio difficulty there, but I think it turned out pretty decent. WarRoomMedia.com is where you can support the show or just sign up for the free newsletter. And if you've made it this far, then you might as well go over there and we'll talk to you tomorrow.